Questions to the Prime Minister. Yeah. Mr Stephen Metcalf. Yeah. Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Before answering my honourable friend, I know the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Michael Meacher. He died suddenly last week, and we send our condolences to his family and friends. Michael dedicated his life to public service, diligently representing his Oldham constituents in this place for a staggering 45 years. He was a passionate advocate of the causes he believed in. These included the environment, and he was able to put these into practice as a minister between 1997 and 2003. This House and our politics are a poorer place without him, and I know that colleagues from all sides of this chamber will remember him with affection and miss him greatly. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Stephen Metcalf. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Can I associate uh, myself with the sympathies expressed by the Prime Minister? Uh, Will my right honourable friend join me in celebrating that one in ten of the world's tractors are built in Basildon? flies without a part built in Basildon, and that Thurrock is not only home to the largest inward investment in the South East, but is also attracting investment from world-renowned organisations such as the Royal Opera House. All this is leading to job creation and uh, opportunity, and will he therefore do all he can to ensure that Britain remains a great place to do business and prospering? Basildon has a special place in my heart. I didn't know all those statistics, but it now has an even more uh, special place. I can tell him that the long-term youth claimant count in his constituency is down by 42% in the last year. He spoke about what a good place Britain is to do business. I'm pleased to say we're now sixth in the rankings in the world for the best place to set up and to run a business. And I know that the Leader of the Opposition, not least because his new spokesman is apparently a great admirer of the Soviet Union, He'll be very pleased to start the day with tractor statistics. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I start by associating myself with the remarks the Prime Minister just made about Michael Meacher? And on behalf of the Labour Party, his constituents, and a much wider community, our condolences to his family. I spoke to them last night and asked them how they would like Michael to be remembered. So they thought about it and sent me a very nice message, which, if I may, Mr Speaker, I'll read out. It's quite brief, but it's very poignant. And this is what they said as memories of Michael. When I was young, one of the things he frequently said to me was that people went into politics because they had principles and wanted to change things to make the world better, but that in order to get into power, they would often compromise on their principles, and that this could happen again and again, until, if they eventually did get into power, they would have become so compromised that they would do nothing with it. Those that knew Michael knew him as a decent, hard-working, passionate and profound man. He represented his constituency with diligence and distinction for 45 years. He was a brilliant environment minister, as the Prime Minister has pointed out. He was totally committed to parliamentary democracy and that this Parliament holding government, all governments, to account. And he was a lifelong campaigner against injustice and poverty, 
We remember Michael for all of those things. We express our condolences. We express our sympathies to his family at this very difficult time. His will be a hard act to follow, but we'll do our best. Mr Speaker, following the events in the other place on Monday evening and the rather belated acceptance from the Prime Minister of the result there, can he now guarantee to the House and to the wider country that nobody will be worse off next year as a result of cuts to working tax credits? What I can guarantee is that we remain committed to the vision of a high-pay, low-tax, lower-welfare economy. To make sure that everyone is better off is keep growing our economy, keep inflation low, keep cutting people's taxes, and introduce the national living wage. As for our changes, the Chancellor will set them out in the autumn statement. Jeremy Corbyn. I thank the Prime Minister for that, but the question I was asking was quite simply this. Will he confirm right now that tax tax credit cuts will not make anyone worse off in April next year. What we want is for people to be better off because we're cutting their taxes and increasing their pay. But he's going to have to be a little patient because although these changes passed the House of Commons five times with ever-enlarging majorities, we will set out our new proposals in the autumn statement and he'll be able to study them. Mr Speaker, this is the time when we ask questions to the Prime Minister on behalf of the people of this country. They... Thank you. Mr Speaker, if I may continue... People are very worried about what's going to happen to them next April. So what exactly does the Prime Minister mean? He's considering it. There's an autumn statement coming up. But we thought he was committed to not cutting tax credits. Is he going to cut tax credits or not? Are people going to be worse off or not in April next year? He must know the answer. First of all, we set out in our election manifesto we were going to find £12 billion of savings on welfare. And this is. Um... Order, there's too much noise in the chamber. A b- order, a bit of calm. The questions must be heard and the answers must be heard. The Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And it's an important point because, of course, every penny we don't save on welfare is savings we have to find in the education budget or in the policing budget or in the health budget. The second point that I would make is because of what's happened in the other place, of course we should have a debate about how to reform welfare and how to reduce the cost of welfare. Now I'm happy to have that debate, but of course it is difficult to have that debate with the honourable gentleman because he has opposed every single welfare change that's been made. He doesn't support the welfare cap. He doesn't support the cap on housing benefit. He doesn't think that any change to welfare is worthwhile. And I have to say, if we want a strong economy and we want growth and we want to get rid of our deficit and we want to secure our country, we need to reform welfare. What we're talking about are tax credits for people in work. 
The Prime Minister knows that. He understands that. He's lost the support of many people in this country that are actually quite sympathetic to his political project. Some of the newspapers who support him have now come out against him on this. He did commit to 12 billion cuts in the welfare budget, but repeatedly refused to say whether tax credits were going to be part of this. In fact, he said they weren't. Can he now give us the answer we're trying to get today? The, the answer will be set out in the autumn statement when we set out our proposals. But I have to say to him, it has come to quite a strange set of events. When you have the House of Commons voting for something five times, when there is absolutely no rebellion amongst Conservative members of Parliament or indeed amongst Conservative peers, and the Labour Party is left defending and depending on unelected peers in the House of Lords. In British politics, we've got a new alliance, the unelected and the unelectable. Mr Speaker, it's very interesting that the Prime Minister still refuses to answer the fundamental question. This is not a constitutional crisis. This is a crisis for three million families in this country, for three million families who are very worried about what's going to happen next April. Just before the last election, the former Chief Whip, now Justice Secretary, said in answer to a question on the BBC World at One, are you going to cut tax credits? The answer was, we are not going to cut them. Why did he say that? What I said in the election is that the basic level of child tax credits would stay the same. And at £2,780 per child, it stays exactly the same. But the point is this. If we want to get our deficit down, if we want to secure our economy, if we want to keep on with secure growth, we need to make savings in welfare. Now, if he, even with his deficit-denying borrow-forever plan, presumably he has to make some savings in public spending. If you don't save any money on welfare, you end up cutting the NHS. You end up cutting even more deeply policing budgets. Those are the truths. When is he going to stop his deficit denial, get off the fence and tell us what he'd do? Mr Speaker, I've... A moment ago that the answers needed to be heard. The questions need to be heard. The Honourable Right Honourable Gentleman is going to ask his question. It will be heard. If it takes longer, so be it. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've five times asked the Prime Minister today whether or not people will be worse off if they receive working tax credits next April. He's still not been able to answer me or indeed many others. Can I put to him a question I was sent by... Mr Speaker, it might be very amusing to members opposite, but... I was sent this question by Karen, and she, I quote, Why is the Prime Minister punishing working families? I work full-time and earn the living wage within the public sector. 
The tax credit cuts will push me and my family into hardship. Can he give a cast-iron guarantee to Karen and all the other families who are very worried what is going to happen next April to their income, how they're going to make ends meet. He could give them the answer today. I hope he will. I ask him for the sixth time, please give us an answer to a very straightforward, very simple question. What I'd say to Karen is this, if she is on the living wage working in the public sector, next year, in April, she will benefit from being able to earn £11,000 before she pays any income tax at all. Right. It was around £6,000 when I became Prime Minister. If she has children, she will benefit from 30 hours of childcare every week. That is something that has happened under this government. But above all, she will benefit because we've got a growing economy, because we've got zero inflation, because we've got two million more people in work, because we're going to train three million apprentices in this parliament. And that is the fact. The reason the Labour Party lost the the last election is they were completely untrusted on the deficit, on debt and on a stable economy. And since then, the deficit deniers have taken over the Labour Party. That is what happened. And when you look at their plans, borrowing forever, printing money, hiking up taxes, it is working people like Karen that would pay the price. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, in my constituency, unemployment has fallen by 30% since 2010. And this government has delivered the M6 link road after 60 years, which will create even more jobs in my area when it is completed. Does my friend the Prime Minister agree with me that the Conservatives are ensuring that Morecambe is back open for business? Remember visiting my honourable friend's constituency and looking at the very important uh, uh, roadworks that were being put in place that are going to open up the port, that are going to help when we bring the new nuclear uh, power station and all the other steps that he wants to see. I can tell him that the long-term youth claimant count in his constituency has fallen by 30% in the last year. Those are all young people now able to work, able to benefit from our growing economy. Mr Angus Robertson. Mr. Speaker, we on these benches associate ourselves with the condolences that have already been expressed by the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition about Michael Meacher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last week I asked the Prime Minister about the tragic circumstances of Michael Sullivan, a man from North London, a disabled man who took his own life after uh, an assessment by the Department of Work and Pensions. We know that at least 60 investigations have taken place into suicides uh, following the uh, cancellation uh, of benefits, but the findings of them have not been published. Now, the Prime Minister said to me, last week that he would look very carefully at the specific question about publication. Will the Prime Minister confirm when those findings will be published? Well, I will write to him about this, but my memory from looking into his question afterwards is there are very good reasons why we can't publish the specific report that he talks about, because it has has personal and medical data in it which would not be appropriate for publication. If I've got that wrong, I'll write to him, but that is my clear memory of looking into his question after last week. Mr Angus Robertson. Thank you very much. Um, Tim Salter from Stourbridge in the West Midlands was 53 when he took his life. The coroner ruled that a major factor in his death was that estate benefits had been, and I quote, greatly reduced, leaving him almost destitute. Tim's sister said, it's the vulnerable people who are going to be affected the worst. The DWP need to publish 
these reviews. The Prime Minister says that he is concerned about the, view, the views of the families involved. The families say the findings should be published. Will he publish the findings? Three million families are going to have their child tax credits cancelled. We need the answer to these questions. Well, well, first of all, let me just correct him on his, on his last point. Under the proposals we put forward, those people on the lowest levels of pay were protected because of the national living wage, and those people on the lowest incomes were protected because we were protecting the basic award of the child tax credit at £2,780. I think the other part of the question is the bit I've already answered, which is my understanding, but I'll, I'll send him a letter if I've got it wrong, is there were too many personal and medical details for that to be published. And so I think that is an important consideration in whether deciding whether to publish something. Mark Pawsey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Mr. Mr Speaker, I'd like to ask the Prime Minister about Ruby. Uh, Ruby is one of my youngest constituents. She is just one month old. Why should Ruby face the prospect of spending her entire working life paying off the debt that's been built up by this generation? Yeah. I, I think Ruby... It's absolutely right to care about Ruby. When we became the government, one in four pounds spent by the government was borrowed money. We had one of the biggest budget deficits anywhere in the world. And it's always easy for people to say, put off the difficult decisions, don't make any spending reductions. But what they're doing is burdening future generations with debt. And what I would say to the Labour front bench, that is not generosity, that is actually selfishness. I think the Honourable Lady must have misheard an innocent error, but Mrs Sharon Hodgson. We all know about the Prime Minister's broken promise on tax credits, but will the final nail in the coffin of compassionate conservatism be hammered home if we were to scrap universal infant free school meals in the spending review, taking hot, healthy meals out of the mouths of innocent, blameless infant children. Will he guarantee now not to scrap universal infant free school meals so he doesn't go down in history as Dave the Dinner Snatcher? I'm immensely proud that it was a government I led that introduced this policy. years of a Labour government, did they ever do that? Do you remember the infant free school meals bill from the Labour Party? No. So I'm proud of what we've done and we'll be keeping it. Mr Stephen Phillips. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, my right honourable friend has demonstrated considerable leadership in ensuring that Britain is the second largest donor of bilateral aid in Syria. Hear, hear. But there is another crisis going on which the world has largely forgotten about. In Yemen, there is an ongoing war. 1.4 million people have been forced to flee their homes, 3 million face starvation, at least half a million children are at risk from life-threatening malnutrition. And the President of the International Red Cross has said that in Yemen, after five months, we are in the same position as we are in Syria after five years. Please, can we do more? 
No, well, my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this, and we have been involved in trying to help in this situation right from the start, as in Syria, where a major contributor in terms of humanitarian aid. We have made very clear that all Yemeni parties should engage without preconditions and in good faith in peace talks to allow Yemen to move towards a sustainable peace. And that needs to be a peace based on the fact that all people in Yemen need proper representation by their government. There are similarities with Syria, which is having a government on behalf of one part of the country is never going to be a sustainable solution. Kirsty Blackman. Mr Speaker, how dare anyone in this House earning £74,000 a year tell families that their combined income of £25,000 is too much and that they need to give some of it back to balance the economy? Mr Speaker, did the Prime Minister refuse to put this in his manifesto? because he knew he wouldn't be elected. Let let me remind the Honourable Lady about the situation we inherited. When I became Prime Minister, nine out of ten families were getting tax credits, including members of Parliament. That is how crazy the system we inherited. Now, we reduced that during the last Parliament, opposed, I have to say, of course, by Labour and the SNP, to six out of ten families. Our proposals would take that down to five out of ten families. But these are not proposals on their own. They are accompanied by a national living wage for the first time. They are accompanied by allowing people to earn £11,000 before paying tax for the the first time. Those sorts of measures will help the sort of family that she talks about. The Prime Minister spoke movingly at conference about the plight of young people in the care system. Can he answer what will the government actually do to improve the life chances of these young disadvantaged children and give them opportunities as they move forward in their lives? Well, I thank my honourable friend for her question. The most important thing we can do is to speed up the adoption system so that more children get adopted. What we've seen uh, since I've been Prime Minister is an increase in adoptions, but then because of one or two, one or two uh, judgments, it's actually slipped backwards a bit, and we need to work very hard to make sure more children get adopted. But for those who can't be adopted, we need to make sure that our residential care homes are doing the best possible job they can. And that is why today I can announce that I've asked the former Chief Executive of Bernardo's, Sir Martin Neri, who's an excellent public servant who I worked with when he was at the Home Office, to conduct an independent review of children's residential care, reporting to the Education Secretary and myself so we can take every possible step to give these children the best start in life. Ian Lucas. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Redundant steel workers, such as those at Caporo Wire in Wrexham, pay national insurance contributions and play by the rules. Why then is this government limiting mortgage interest support for them in the future and making them pay twice, once through national insurance and once through paying back a loan? Isn't that the type of action that an irresponsible government like his should not be pursuing? And isn't it an example of compassionate conservatism dying? Well, actually, what the Honourable Gentleman refers to is a temporary recession measure 
on uh, mortgage payments that was actually continued for five years. But he does give me the opportunity to, to say, as I promised I would last night, to update the House on what we're doing to help the steel industry that I know is important to his constituency. And on energy costs, I can announce today that we'll refund the energy intensive industries for the full amount of the policy costs they face as soon as we get the state aid judgment from Brussels. And I can confirm that payment will be made immediately and that payment will be made throughout this Parliament, far more generous than what has been proposed by the party opposite. hundreds of emails from constituents regarding the Northern Powerhouse, and I've just chosen one. John from Weaver Vale emailed me to tell me to not listen to the Leader of the Opposition with his strategy of higher spending, higher borrowing, more debt, but instead to stick to our long-term economic plan for a higher wage, lower welfare, low-tax society. Does the Prime Minister agree with John from Weaver Vale? Yeah. I, I do agree. John of Weaver Vale has demonstrated more sense in his email than the Leader of the Opposition did in at least six questions. And the point I'd make is not only have we seen an economy that is growing, two million more people in work, inflation that is low, and so living standards are rising, but actually we can see there are 680,000 fewer workless households and 480,000 fewer children in workless households. If you want to measure the real difference that the growth in our economy is making, think of those children, think of those households, and think of the dignity of work. Mark Durkin. Uh, Mr Speaker, last weekend was the first anniversary of the death from cervical cancer of Derry girl Saoirse Glam, aged 23. In June 2013, she had been concerned enough to ask for an early smear test, but was refused because she was under 25. As Team Sorsia and highlighting other life cases, her family have now written an open letter to the Prime Minister. Can I ask him not to offer here a reflex repeat of the rationale for current screening age policy, but to reflect on the questions raised about how this translates into refusing smear tests to young women like Sorsia? and to consider the age-related data since the screening age was increased in 2004. No, well, the, the Honourable Gentleman raises an absolutely tragic case, and our thoughts go to her, her family and her friends. And He raises an important case because, of course, the UK National Screening Committee set the age at 25. And My understanding is the reason for that is not a resources-based decision. It's because of the potential perverse medical consequences of carrying out screening routinely below that age, that there would be a number potentially of false positives because of actually uh, anatomical changes that go on uh, at that age. That's the reason. It's not a resources decision. But as he says, it is worth looking at those people who fear they have a family history and ask for a test, and I'll certainly write to him on that specific issue. Anderson away. Yesterday, the EU said that we can no longer have filters on the internet to protect our children from indecent images. I want to know what the Prime Minister is going to do to make sure that our children remain protected. Like her, I think it is absolutely vitally important that we enable parents to have that protection for their children uh, from this material on the internet. And probably like her, when I read my Daily Mail this morning, I spluttered over my cornflakes because we worked so hard to put in place these filters. But I can reassure her 
I can reassure her because we actually secured an opt-out yesterday so we can keep our family-friendly filters to protect children. And I can tell the House that we will legislate to put our agreement with internet companies on this issue into the law of the land so that our children will be protected. Tim Farron. Mr Speaker, could I associate myself with the Prime Minister's earlier remarks about the late Michael Meacher, who is a, a decent man, a good constituency MP and an extremely effective Environment Secretary. Uh, yesterday I visited the refugee camps on Lesbos and there I met families that were inspirational and desperate. Alongside with the British charity workers that I found there, I am frankly ashamed that we will not offer a home to a single one of those refugee families. So may I ask the Prime Minister this question? Will he agree with the, uh, the Save the Children plea that we take as a country 3,000 vulnerable, unaccompanied children in Europe, some of whom are as young as six? Well, first of all, let me uh, again welcome the honourable gentleman to his, to his place. It's good to see such a high turnout of uh, his MPs. Um, <laughs> let, me, um, let me answer him very directly. We have taken the decision as a country to take 20,000 refugees, and we think it is better to take them from the camps than instead of taking them from inside Europe. I repeat again today that we believe we will achieve 1,000 refugees brought to Britain and housed and clothed and fed before Christmas. Now, specifically on his question about the 3,000 children and the proposal made by Save the Children, I've looked at this very carefully. There are other NGOs and experts who point to the very real danger of separating children from their broader families, and that's why, to date, we haven't taken that, we haven't taken that decision. Mr Christopher Pincher. his negotiations on our reformed relationship with the European Union in earnest. Will my right honourable friend confirm to our partners and the British people that no option is off the table? All British options will be considered, including the option of a relationship such as that of Norway, if it's negotiable and in our interest. Now, yes. I can certainly confirm to uh, my honourable friend that no options are off the table. And as I've been clear, if we don't get what we need in our renegotiation, I rule absolutely nothing out. But I do think it's important, as we have this debate as a nation, that we're very clear about the facts and figures about the alternatives. As some people arguing for Britain to leave the European Union, not all people, but some people, have particularly pointed to the p- position of Norway, saying that is a good outcome. I would guide very strongly against that. Norway actually pays as much per head to the EU as we do. They actually take twice as many per head migrants as we do in this country. But of course, they have no seat at the table, no ability to negotiate. Now, I'm not arguing that all those who want to leave the EU say they want to follow the Norwegian path, but some do. And I think it's very important in this debate we absolutely are clear about the consequences of these different actions. Prime Minister, join me in congratulating my 17-year-old constituent, Jessie McCabe, on her 3,800-name petition, e-petition that's managed to get the exam board Edexcel for the first time ever to accept women composers on the syllabus. And while he's there, would he tell us, is he a feminist? <laughs> if, if, if feminism means that we should treat people equally, then yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
proud of the fact that I've got sitting round the Cabinet table a third uh, women sitting round the Cabinet table, something we promised and something that we delivered. Yeah. Uh, but can I congratulate her, above all, can I congratulate her for her achievement in terms of this e-petition? It sounds thoroughly worthwhile, and her constituent and her have done a good job. Yeah, yeah. Mr Andrew Turner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, the NHS England, NHS England knows that the Isle of Wight Clinical Commissioning Group uh, is a significant outlier in relation to its allocation target. Can my right honourable friend confirm that progress is being made to identify the factors affecting the island? Will, she, will, will we benefit from amendments to the new CCG formula. Well, what I can say to my honourable friend is it's right that decisions on allocations are made independent of government and not by government, and so that is how uh, the formula is reached. I can also tell him that there is an independent review of the funding formula underway. We expect to see its recommendations later this year, but these things should be done in a fair and transparent way. Mary Cray. Speaker, um, the Prime Minister will remembering, remember meeting my constituents, Neil um, Shepherd and Sharon Wood. Uh, nine years ago this week, Neil took their two children, Christy, age seven, and Bobby, age six, on holiday to Corfu, and the children tragically died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, the family's dearest wish is that no other family suffers the heartbreak and tragedy that they have endured. Tomorrow, in the European Parliament, there will be a vote on a recommendation that the Commission brings forward legislation to improve carbon monoxide safety and fire safety for tourism premises in the EU. Can I ask the Prime Minister that his MEPs support it, and if that motion falls, will he look at instigating legislation nationally in this country? Well, first of all, I well remember the meeting that we had and the great bravery of the parents after their terrible loss, uh, wanting to go on and campaign to make sure that others didn't lose children in the way that they had. I'll look very carefully at what she's saying about the European Parliament. As for legislation in this country, we do have very strict legislation on particular uh, things about, uh, about fire-resistant materials, but I'll look carefully at that too. Question 14, closed question. Mr Michael Fabricant. And 14, sir. Prime Minister... The Chancellor and I set out an ambitious long-term plan for the Midlands, making its future engine for growth for the whole of the UK. Across government, we're actively working with business leaders and local authorities to progress this ambition. Mr Michael Fabricant. I, think my, I thank my right honourable friend for his answer. The Northern Powerhouse will help millions, but it's the West Midlands, which is the only region in the UK which has a trade balance surplus with China, and it's Greater Birmingham which has the fastest rate of private sector job creation in the UK since 2010. So will the Prime Minister now ensure, in the national interest, that the West Midlands secures the best devolution deal possible? I think we have huge potential here to secure massive devolution to the West Midlands. First of all, I'd say to everyone in the West Midlands concerned that somehow they're going to be left out by the Northern Powerhouse, actually I think the West Midlands is in the perfect place to benefit both from the success and growth of London and, of course, a rebalancing of our economy uh, towards the north of England. In terms of the West Midlands, we look forward to a, uh, the West Midlands Combined Authority coming 
forward with its plans. And what I'd say to all of these areas contemplating uh, devolution and devolution deals, the more you can put on the table, the bolder you can be with your vision, the bolder response, the response you'll get from government. Three in Austin. Mr Speaker, can I tell the Prime Minister and the Chancellor that there's strong support, all the parties, the LEPs, business, local authorities, right across the West Midlands, for a properly funded and significant devolution deal to strengthen the economy, to boost productivity, to get the brownfield sites redeveloped, to tackle congestion, so that we can transform the West Midlands with more jobs, better skills, quicker transport links and new homes. Well, I'm very glad to hear from the Honourable Gentleman what an opportunity there is in the West Midlands to work across party to get the very best deal across all these authorities, because, as I said, the more we can get the local authorities to come together and work together and put their uh, ambition and vision on the table, the, the, even the better response they'll get from the Government. Simon Burns. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that bullying in the workplace is reprehensible? Oh, indeed. Yeah. Can he tell me whether the government is planning any review of the legislation with a view to extending it to this chamber? Prime Minister. Given that uh, my honourable friend has been called for a Prime Minister's questions at 12.38, I would have thought any hint of bullying was clearly over in this House. In any uh, conceivable way, he suffers no disadvantage, and I think that is a very good thing. But I, I mustn't make like bullying in the workplace is a problem. Uh, I think we do need to make sure it is stamped out and dealt with wherever it occurs, and that should apply in Parliament as elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Order.